welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and the greatest of emergency medicine. Our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. This is the audio version of the past week's written spoon feeds, which were brought to you by the unstoppable Michael Wolf, Aaron Lacey, Vivian Lay, and Clay Smith. The first article was titled Surviving Sepsis Campaign International Guidelines for the Management of Septic Shock and Sepsis-Associated Organ Dysfunction in Children, out of the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. Sepsis is a scary thing, made all the worse when it happens in children. Having a protocol to help you act quickly and make fewer mistakes is vital. We're going to go through a few select points from the Pediatric Surviving Sepsis Guidelines. In the initial approach to these children, rapid assessment and recognition is fundamental. These guidelines recommend a systematic approach for screening patients for sepsis, with a protocol established by your institution to improve speed and reliability of care. This makes a difference. A recent single-center observational study associated bundled care with a five times lower mortality rate. Next up is antibiotics. There's no big changes from previously in these guidelines, but whatever you give, of course, give it fast. Get a blood culture before the antibiotics, but don't let anything delay them. For most kids, ceftriaxone is going to be a good first-choice empiric therapy, but tailor your choice to your clinical concern. If you're thinking about MRSA, give Vanco. Neutropenic, cover gram-negatives in Canada. A neonate, think about listeria and HSV. The list goes on, and you may have to give multiple agents, depending on what your kid presents like. If you're starting antibiotics, you're already thinking about fluid resuscitation as well. If intensive care is available, the guidelines suggest bolusing up to a total of 40 to 60 milliliters per kilogram, with 10 to 20 milliliters per kilogram per bolus. Titrate using cardiac output markers like fluid rate, cap refill, and level of consciousness, and then stopping if they start to go into fluid overload. If intensive care isn't available, it's better to be more conservative and only bolus a hypotensive patient to a total of no more than 40 milligrams per kilogram, favoring balanced solutions like Ringer's lactate or normal saline. For the sickest patients, the guidelines stress the importance of a reassessment during resuscitation. Bedside echo is a good tool to determine cardiac output, and you may want to consider trending lactate levels as well. Your go-to vasopressors should be epinephrine or norepinephrine, no more dopamine. Avoid automidate when intubating and expect high PEEP to maintain oxygenation in the setting of acute respiratory distress syndrome. So the spoonful for this one is to recognize sepsis fast. Have a protocol, tailor your therapy to your patients, and be ready to resuscitate sick kids. The second article was titled One-Year Mortality and Associated Factors in Patients Receiving Out-of-Hospital Naloxone for Presumed Opioid Overdoses, out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Naloxone has increasingly become a part of our emergency medicine arsenal since its adoption into practice in the 1970s. This saves lives in out-of-hospital opioid overdoses. Despite living to see another day, we intuitively know that these patients are still at higher risk for future mortality. But just how much higher is that risk? Knowing that might help change our disposition after the acute overdose is over. 
This was a regional retrospective cohort study into the administration of -of out-of-hospital naloxone in seven North Carolina counties. Over the span of two years, 3,000 patients received naloxone with 72.7% showing clinical improvement. After this event, the mortality at day zero was 0%. At day two was 0.6%. At day 30 was 3.6%. And at one year was 12%. Overall, that means that patients in this group were 13 times more likely to be dead at one year than the general population. For those without clinical improvement with naloxone, the percent mortality was higher in all time frames. But that's just likely because the respiratory depression or altered mental status was not due to opioids, but rather to a more pathological condition, uh, such as a stroke, which has a much worse prognosis. Interestingly, multiple doses of naloxone was not associated with the higher mortality, but old age and black race were. In a spoonful, patients who have an out-of-hospital opioid overdose reversal with naloxone have a 13-fold increased one-year mortality compared to the general population. And a striking number is the 3.6% mortality at one month. We may need to be more aggressive with our discussions and resources to help these patients when they go out the door. The third article was the conservative versus interventional treatment of spontaneous pneumothorax out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Traditionally, for patients presenting with spontaneous pneumothorax, they would receive a chest tube and hospital admission. Here we have a study looking to flip that approach on its head, thinking that maybe all of that isn't as necessary as we think it is. This was a multi-center randomized non-inferiority trial conducted out of 39 sites in Australia and New Zealand with a total of 319 patients aged 14 to 50 with moderate to large primary pneumothorax randomized to either intervention or conservative treatment. The intervention group had a small bore chest tube placed in the ER. If the pneumothorax did not resolve after one hour of water seal and four hours of clamping or reoccurred, then they were admitted. In the conservative group, patients were just observed for four hours and then discharged if they didn't require supplemental oxygen, could walk comfortably, and didn't require other interventions. Of the patients from the conservative treatment group, 84.6% were ultimately spared from receiving a chest tube. At eight-week follow-up, there was no statistical difference between the groups for resolution of pneumothorax, with 98.5% in the intervention group and 94.4% in the conservative group. The conservative group also had lower adverse event rates, with shorter hospital stays, less days off work, less imaging studies, lower rates of surgery, and a lower rate of recurrence in the first 12 months. In a spoonful, Conservative management of moderate to large primary spontaneous pneumothoraxes was non-inferior to interventional treatment, with lower risk of complications and reoccurrence. The fourth article was titled, Impact of Timing of Pre-Procedural Opioids on Adverse Events in Procedural Sedation, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Opioids and sedatives are dangerous drugs. When you mix the two together, the risk of apnea increases even higher. That being said, it won't do to hesitate to treat pain on patients when they arrive or before x-rays, even if they may need to be sedated. But does the timing of when you give these opioids matter? This was a secondary analysis of a pediatric sedation study with almost 4,000 children less than 18 years old. Of these kids, 29% had opioids before sedation, 
And in this cohort, there was a 4.5% increase in oxygen desaturation. There was a 2% increase in vomiting. And there was a 1.5% increase in positive pressure ventilation. This was greatest when the opioids were given within 30 minutes of sedation. So, treat pain. But if sedation is imminent, you may want to hold off. But if you need to do it, then just be prepared. Target for low doses and being ready for apnea or vomiting if it happens. All right, here's the spoonful. In a pediatric population, opioids given prior to sedation increase the risk of oxygen desaturation, vomiting, and the need for positive pressure ventilation, especially if given within 30 minutes of sedation. The last article for today was titled, Can Emergency Physicians Accurately Rule Out a Central Cause of Vertigo Using the HINTS Exam, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine? The HINTS Exam, that is the well-known acronym for Head Impulse, Nystagmus, and Test of Skew. It is meant to be able to be used as an effective and accurate way to detect vertebrobasal or stroke versus a peripheral vertigo syndrome. In the hands of an expert, and I mean your neuro-ophthalmologist colleagues, that distinction may be clear. Let's take a peek at how well emergency physicians do with the HINTS exam. This was a meta-analysis of five studies of patients with vertigo who had a HINTS exam as part of their workup and a CT or MRI as gold standard. If the HINTS exam was done by a neurologist or a neuro-ophthalmologist, then sensitivity and specificity were 97% and 95% respectively. That's pretty good. However, the only study that included both emergency doctors and neurologists had a lower sensitivity and specificity, with a sensitivity of 83% and a specificity of 44%. So a lot worse. Keep in mind, though, that the overall quality of the included studies was low, all of which were at significant danger of biases. So it's possible that some factors may have affected these numbers. In a spoonful, the HINTS exam alone, at least in the hands of just an emergency doctor, in patients with acute vestibular syndromes, was not sufficient to rule out a central cause of vertigo. Make sure that you have a low threshold for MRI in these patients. So what did we learn today? We learned that sepsis is scary, especially in kids. It pays to be systematic and have a protocol. Next, our patients receiving out-of-hospital naloxone aren't home-free just yet. With a 13-fold increase in mortality at one year, these patients still need our help. After that, patients coming in with spontaneous pneumothorax who are doing well clinically may be able to be treated conservatively which might be safer than chest tube placement. Then came a study showing that in kids who might need sedation, think about how soon that might be when your hand is hovering over that opioid prescription. If it's within 30 minutes, consider holding off. Finally, we learned that the HINTS exam is a good test. But know your strengths and your weaknesses. We may not be the ones to conduct it, so have a low threshold for MRI if you're not reassured. Alright guys, that's it for this week. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at our website at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. How are you liking our audio spoon feeds? Don't be shy, head over to iTunes, leave a review. We here at the Journal Feed love to keep up with the latest research, and we like to help you do the same. 
one spoonful at a time. Thank you.